Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio. Today's episode is sponsored by Doxly. Doxly's secure transaction management platform brings control, peace of mind, and velocity to legal transactions by centralizing checklists and reporting, tracking documents, tasks, and versions, and automating the entire signature management process. Corporate transactions simplified. For more information, go to doxly.com. That's D-O-X-L-Y.com. Hello, listeners. It's Nicole Giantonio, the founder of Left Foot, and I'm here to announce that our 12 audio-based business development challenges are now available. 12 practical, execution-oriented steps to predictable business development success. Go to leftfoot.com for details. Hello, listeners, and welcome to Left Foot. Today's guest is a corporate and transactional lawyer the author of more than 30 books on legal and strategic aspects of business growth, and an adjunct professor within the business schools of two prestigious institutions. He served as the legal and strategic advisor to dozens of Fortune 500 companies and hundreds of emerging growth companies. The chair of Seifarth Shaw's Washington, D.C. corporate department, partner Andrew Sherman, welcome to Left Foot. It's great to be here, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me today. Great to have you as a guest on our program, Andrew. Which of your personal strengths or habits have allowed you to be successful in developing business? That's a great question. I would say a couple of things. We all enter into the profession for various reasons. I get immense pleasure from solving problems. To me, that's the highest form of compliment. I mean, just to be the type of person that others rely on to fix problems and solve problems, to see things differently. I guess the second thing is most people would describe me as incredibly well-organized. You know, I've got a system for, you know, when I meet people, following up with people. I mean, it doesn't have to be overly aggressive or obnoxious. It just has to be a system that whatever you're comfortable with works. I think so much prospective legal work and new business falls through the cracks. Some of us may be in business development situations we don't even realize we're in until it's too late and we didn't get somebody's contact info or, you know, how many times are you halfway searching for, you know, a guy named Larry who you think works at company X who you met on an airplane and it just never occurred to you get a business card or LinkedIn on LinkedIn. A third reason, I talk about this in my Road Rules book, I'm an educator at heart. I always have been. And I'm most comfortable when I'm educating others. And I don't care whether that's in a boardroom, a classroom, in a podcast, on stage doing a keynote. At the end of the day, I'll ask myself, how many people did you educate? And in what ways were you educated? And I've been asking myself that question for nearly 40 years and it's kind of worked out well. So I think when you come at things with a genuine passion for solving problems or identifying opportunities for others, when you have an educator's mindset and heart and you know willingness to put your clients and their interests first, I think business development, in whatever way it manifests itself, kind of comes naturally from there. Great way to start off. And I have to agree with you that there is this approach. And I think you've summarized it well in saying, okay, your approach is you're helping people solve business problems. And then, of course, you know, that idea that you learn about something and then you teach others. I mean, those are great points. I think it resonates for people when you come with that passion, right? And you come with that idea of, I'm going to help you. You know, yeah. And look, I've been happily married for 32 years, but 
Business development is a little bit, even though it's getting foggy for me, it's a little bit like the time when we were single, okay? And when we're single, you know, if you go into a dance club or a bar and you're like too aggressively looking around to meet people, you know, it's kind of a turnoff, right? But if you're confident and you're friendly and you're genuinely interested in meeting someone, you probably will. And I think business development is that way too. I mean, you have to have the right balance between being excited to meet new people and help them out, but not being that guy at the coffee machine that's handing out 80 business cards that nobody even really wants. And we all know what that guy looks like and who he or she is at various networking events. And so, you know, I've always wanted to come into events with a certain confidence, a certain calm, but also an excitement to meet some new people that maybe we can help in some way. And even if I can't help them, maybe one of my partners can. Maybe, you know, there's some other resource at the firm that they need. That's another important point I would add to business development is we get caught up in this horse blinder way and only think about, I'm here to find people who need my specific skill sets. My attitude, both at Jones Day and now at Seifarth Shaw, is I'm a citizen of the firm. And I want to be the best citizen of the firm that I can be. And when I'm sitting with somebody that might need our services, it's not about me. It's not about my team. It's not about the DC office. It's about how can the firm be of help? And, you know, frankly, in law firms today, we need a little bit more and better citizenship, just like we kind of need it as a nation. There's a number of firms that talk about that citizenship and really creating an environment where partners and others, people that are part of the legal ecosystem within the firm, are comfortable bringing in business that's not in their practice, that is for the good of the firm. Andrew, can you chat a bit more about you know why you feel incented to do that and and really you know how that works as part of your strategy for your practice? Because of course you have an obligation to the people in your practice and to your firm to really support those specific initiatives. How do you balance that? That's a great question, Nicole. So a couple of things. Number one, you're right. There has to be certain incentives and rewards in the compensation system at a firm for that philosophy to be successful. But it can't be just about the compensation and reward system. It has to be a culture of cooperation and collaboration, and it has to be real. It has to be a real and genuine commitment. You know, it makes me happy to serve on a team. It makes me happy to be part of something larger than myself. It makes me unhappy to see partners sitting in the corner only thinking about themselves or only thinking about their work teams or their departments. And so, you know, when I was searching, you know, potentially to consider a switch to a new firm, I I really tried to delve deeply into the culture and look for those collaborative and cooperative features. And, you know, it's been about 14, 15 months now at Seifarth, and it's really been wonderful. And I'm not trying to say that Seifarth is unique and that other firms don't have it. Of course, other firms have it, but some firms do and some firms don't. And no matter how hard you try and no matter how hard you reward people for cross-marketing efforts, it's got to be something that people want to do, not something that they have to do in order for it to really work. And a lot of it too, it's not just collaboration and cooperation, it's also communication. I can't sell what I don't know. If the guy down the hall 
for me is the world's leading expert in ERISA litigation, but I don't take five minutes to get to know him and his practice, then I might have five pieces of ERISA litigation slip right through my hands. The other part of this is we all get so busy and we're servicing clients throughout the day and we find it starting to be eight, nine, ten o'clock at night and people are exhausted and they don't want to spend that extra 15 minutes to add a few names to their LinkedIn account or post an update to LinkedIn of an article that one of their partners wrote or just walk down the hall and spend five minutes. Just the other night, there was a couple of us here late and we had ordered dinner and we were about to grab our dinners and run right back to our office, which is the typical response. And I said, hey, you know what? Let's take five minutes and sit together, as crazy as that sounds, and talk and get to know each other better. And they were four partners, one from real estate, one from IP, one from employment litigation, and me as a corporate lawyer. And you know, we had a really enjoyable 10 minute chat. And of course, then we ran back to our desk and did our work. You got to make the investment. And if you're not willing to make the investment, then you're not going to get the outbound uh, cross referrals, but you also may not get the inbound cross referrals. I mean, I've been pleasantly surprised by how many people within the firm have reached out to me for my areas of expertise. In life, you get what you give. So some of that level of inbound referrals is because I take the citizen of the firm approach and have tried to do everything that I can to make outbound referrals. So let's dive in a little bit deeper on both that strategy and those tactical things, because it is so critical that you have a plan, right? So obviously you've passed your one-year mark at the firm. You now have, of course, you have to deliver for your practice. You have to deliver for the firm. There is that kind of big plan. And that, of course, includes those internal connections, especially because they're new ones that you're establishing, as well as what you're doing externally. How do you plan for it strategically? And then, Andrew, are there specific things that you make sure you do every day? Is there 10 minutes every morning that you spend reviewing LinkedIn, promoting an article, promoting something that you've written, someone on your team's written, one of your partners written? You know, What are those two things, that strategic plan and that tactical plan? So let me attack it in a couple of ways. One, let's talk about habits. Everyone remembers the Covey book, The Seven Habits of Successful People or whatever the exact title was. And yeah, I have certain habits. Let's talk about my computer habits first. One of the first things I'll do when I log on after I deal with all the emergency emails, which sometimes takes me till 10 o'clock at night, I will go first over to our intranet and see what new articles, what new news, you know, just learn a little bit about what's going on internally. I'll check our external website to see if any resources have been posted that I want to send either to a specific client or, you know, post the link into a LinkedIn or even a Facebook or a Twitter. And then I will go to usually CNBC or Bloomberg because as a corporate lawyer, I have to be up to speed on what's going on in the capital markets. Maybe I see an article about a deal that's directly or indirectly relevant to a deal that we're working on. And I might spend five, 10 minutes sending those links around, scanning those pages for any alignments or disconnects in the business news or capital markets that I think would be of interest to my clients or to my colleagues. And I try and do that every day religiously, whether it's at the beginning of the day or the end of the day or both. Then I'll go to my LinkedIn, see what new requests have come in for additional connections, maybe make a few additional connections. I mean, it is a routine. And you're right to think that this stuff's starting to add up 
half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe even, God forbid, an hour of time? And can you invest an hour of time in yourself and in your practice and in your firm once a day? And I don't think it's that much to ask. I think the lost revenue to the firm of that hour multiplies itself many times over if you're using that hour efficiently. And you know, I've talked to younger partners about investing an hour a day, a half an hour a day, you know, even if it comes down to an hour a week, but that time to really think about being something more than sitting at your desk and being a billing machine is very, very important and very worthwhile. And frankly, I think adds a little bit more balance to the day. All of us are capable of sitting at our desk and billing all day long, but can we do some of the extra things for ourselves and for our practices and for our firms that will help us grow. I mean, we're, we can talk about this later in the podcast, but the profession is up against a whole series of challenges that I'm happy to discuss. And if we don't make those investments of time, I'm worried that we're going to become complacent or irrelevant. And those are not good things. We had a guest last week who basically compared the need to do these exercises, right? To communicate, to stay up to date, to be out there and connecting with people, whether it be in social media or in traditional networking, that these things are so important that it has to be looked at like exercise, right? You can't just, you know, eat badly for a year and not exercise and then kind of do it one day and think you'll be okay, right? It's not going to happen. You have to be consistent. You have to keep up. No, you're 100% right. The only problem with the analogy with exercise is some people hate exercise. I love it. I wish I could spend three hours a day at the gym. That analogy is a good one. The way I would redial that is to say, think about your most favorite thing in the world. And if that's exercise, then think of it like exercise. Whatever your favorite thing is, make this your favorite thing. Because as I said earlier, as soon as these moments in time become a burden to you or something you feel you have to do, it won't be as effective. You know, back to my my dating metaphor, I mean, you know, you show up at a party and you feel like you have to be there and you can't wait to leave. You know, how many new friends do you think you're going to make? Not many. I mean, you have to embrace it and enjoy it. And these days, there's so many different ways to do it. You know, I do a lot of public speaking because I'm pretty good at it. But some people don't like public speaking at all. So maybe there's other ways to communicate. You know, I enjoy these podcast formats. I don't look at them as a burden. I didn't look at the upcoming Left Foot podcast as, oh my God, I've got to take myself away from, you know, 97 client crises. I said, that's just as important as the client call I have coming up in an hour. Some of it is also ranking and prioritizing the importance of these things and embracing them as enjoyable. And so if that's exercise for you, then make it exercise. If it's something else, you know, then make that the analogy. Thank you. Appreciate you sharing that. It really is that idea of, you know, find that thing. You have to be motivated. You have to want to do it. And now a word from our episode sponsor. Legal transactions are complex and chaotic. Simplify with Doxly. With countless documents, revisions, and signatures to review, negotiate, and track, lawyers can get bogged down in administrative work and distracted from higher margin tasks that add value to a transaction. Doxly provides one solution to manage all aspects of your transaction practice. For more information, go to doxly.com. That's D-O-X-L-Y.com. 
Nicole here, and a shout out and thank you for tuning in to the Left Foot Podcast. Are you looking to refresh your business development efforts? Our 12 Left Foot Business Development Challenges will refresh your efforts in three areas. Business Development Grit, tactical habits that lead to business development success, including networking, nailing your niche, how to focus and develop an expert reputation, commercial savoir-faire, a discussion on business and the revenue side of law. At Left Foot, we believe 20% of people are natural at business development, 10% say no to business development, and 70% are neutral and can adopt the skills necessary when presented in an organized, methodical way. To learn more and be challenged, go to leftfoot.com. You also touched when you were going through your approach to the time, the tactical time you spend, you talked about looking at CNBC, Bloomberg, staying abreast of things going on in your space, which really lends to a topic we talk about on Left Foot a lot, which is business acumen and corporate M&A lawyers, lawyers that are working with corporate clients, having to be informed about the industry of their clients and having some business acumen. Is that something that you recommend to others? Do you feel that some formal education is needed for lawyers to to gain that business acumen? Or is that something that for yourself and for others on your team, you know, really can be absorbed through, again, taking an interest and following up and being aware of what's going on in business? You know, how does business acumen play into the role of those corporate lawyers? You mentioned at the opening of the show that I teach at two prestigious universities. If you don't mind, let me mention that for a second. So in 1988, I began teaching at the Smith School of Business in the MBA program and executive MBA program. And for almost 25 years, all I did was teach business strategy, business planning, business growth to MBAs, not as a lawyer, but as a strategist. And about 10 years ago, Georgetown Law School reached out to me and said, we'd like you to come teach for us. And I said, absolutely not. I said, I don't, I didn't like law school. I don't want to teach blue book footnoting. I mean, I said, that's like teaching law school would be the worst thing I could possibly imagine. And they said, yeah, but you know, you've had a successful career teaching at Maryland. You've taught for us at the McDonough School of Business at Georgetown, you know, give one semester a try. And of course, like an idiot, I gave one semester a try and fell in love with it. And what I fell in love with, Nicole, was teaching young lawyers about business and the importance of business savvy and economics and capital market dynamics and business strategy in order to be an effective corporate lawyer. And now in my 10th year at Georgetown Law, I'm teaching three different courses that focus on best practices in business lawyering, all types of business-minded courses. I've been partnering up with a guy named Steve Hills, who's now on the faculty that used to be the CEO of the Washington Post. And we're trying to add a more robust set of programming for law students who want to come out of law school, not necessarily with a joint MBA, JD, which of course is a possibility, but where they just want to be more business savvy. You've hit on a very, very important component of being a corporate and transactional lawyer, and that's an absolute dedication and passion for the underlying business challenges that your clients have. Because, you know, as we advance as a society, problems are not easily bucketized. Clients aren't thinking, oh, well, this problem I'm going to go to the lawyers for, and this problem the consultants, and this problem the accountants, and this problem somebody else. They're thinking, I've got a problem. Now, who wants to solve it? 
And who wants to solve it efficiently and cost-effectively and strategically? And I want clients to think of us and our team as the answer to those questions. I mean, we have to be thinking of ourselves as the offerer of solutions to problems, even if those problems don't have a distinct legal parameters, but may be legally rooted. We can't offer ourselves as problem solvers if we don't understand the business aspects of the problem. Absolutely great. Think of the term, and I know it's cringeworthy for some of our listeners that are under 45, the trusted advisor term. I always go back to that. Without the label of lawyer, without the label of CFO, of outside consultant, it is really that trusted advisor label. That's exactly right. Exactly. And the trusted advisor role means trusted advisor on a wide range of value that you're trying to add, not just only taking the phone call if something is 110% a legal problem. There you go. So how about a success story? Can you share a success story around business development where you were able to acquire a client or obtain a new piece of business from a current client that was either surprising to you or was really, you know, a lot of people say they have that one story that's really made their career. What's yours? There's several of them that were definitely career-making. One of the ones we're working on now, it's about a $2 billion company. They've been around for almost 100 years. They're very well-known in their industry. We had been doing some antitrust work for them and some trademark work for them, and they've decided to get into a franchising strategy model. And we were immediately brought in in a kind of circuitous way through another law firm, even though we had an existing relationship with the client and the law firm did not have capabilities in the franchising area. And now we're you know, deeply embedded into the project and we talk to the client almost every day. And I've been keeping my partners in New York and Boston who have done some work for this client posted. And it's been a wonderful, wonderful way to expand the relationship and expand the footprint. And we got lucky because in addition to all of those variables, a brand new general counsel had just come in. And so, of course, he's taking a look at all of the relationships and where they are at the time. And, you know, we're getting a chance to kind of meet him just as he's getting settled into his chair and show that not only can we be a source of great legal advice, but that we really understand the strategic aspects of what they're trying to accomplish. So again, it came from within the firm, but sort of outside the firm. And so it had at least a couple of the variables that you're asking about. But a lot of it is just really listening out for things. Years ago, when I was still at Jones Day, we got a call where the general counsel was making kind of a gentle inquiry as to whether we had a certain capability. And I jumped on it immediately, recognized it to be potentially a much, much larger matter than it seemed from the gentleness of the inquiry. That was very satisfying. I think that if I was not listening 100% to that conversation or I was distracted in some way, I might have missed the subtlety that was embedded of the importance of the problem. And look, we're all distracted. We're all multitasking. But if we multitask too much or get too distracted, we could end up missing an opportunity that's quite significant. Thank you for sharing that story. I'm a huge believer that multitasking is not something we actually do. You basically are switching 
that you're going from whatever you're currently focused on in this second to the next thing, right? You can't really do two things together. In my corporate world, in my world here at Left Foot, there's a lot of competing demands. I really try to stay focused on one thing, at least for a period of time. You know, how do you do that? I mean, because obviously you're saying one of the keys to your success has been listening, being aware, focusing. Is there something you do to make sure that you're paying attention? I mean, we've all seen it. You know, when I'm in meetings, I'm trying, but I'm trying to stay laser focused on what is this client's problem or opportunity? What can I do to either solve the problem or facilitate and be a catalyst to the opportunity? If I'm constantly looking down at my phone, if I'm distracted, I'm not there. And at our hourly rates, we need to be all in and then some. And I'm worried that we are becoming distracted and as a society, and that's leading to high levels of disengagement. I think you know my most recent book that came out literally just a couple months ago is called The Crisis of Disengagement. I would love to talk about it for a few minutes if you're game, but as it applies to our profession, there is a very high percentage, an alarmingly high percentage of partners at law firms nationwide that are disengaged, that are really resenting their choice, their career choice. They are boxed into their career financially. You know, they're in their 40s or 50s. The law is affording them a nice income, and there's really very little out there that will pay them that income if they were to leave the law, but they really aren't happy with what they do or who they do it with or the firm that they're at or their practice group or whatever it may be. And I feel like we owe a fiduciary obligation to be engaged, to be in the moment, to make the client feel like they're the only client in the world, which even though they know they're not, it's nice to try and make them feel that way. I was with my son last night at a baseball game, 10 o'clock at night, I get this email from a client on a very large transaction. And he says, I just want you to know you completely rocked it today. I'm sitting here thinking how appreciative I am that you were able to jump on the call, you know, and I had like, you know, beaming ear to ear smiles. I mean, that email, two sentences long, will last me all week. Like no matter what happens, I've got that email now and I'm going to be grasping onto that. And, you know, you either live for that stuff or you don't, but we've got to do better. I keep getting these emails and LinkedIn posts about, you know, the number of partners at law firms that you know, have uh, substance abuse problems or depression or anxiety or stress or overweight. You know, I mean, you know, we're not in a good place and we need to be in a better place because clients are relying on us and clients are paying us a lot of money and reliance and reward need to be enough for you to be engaged and functional and all in. And if not, you know, you got to do yourself a favor and get out or change something in your life because there's just too much at stake for you and for your firms and for the clients if you're sort of, you know, half practicing. I get a lot of the legal push communications and you're reading them and you're hearing about real concerning trends that are occurring. I have to say on the more positive side, one of the large firm partners, his advice to associates, one of the pieces of advice was make sure you exercise, which I thought was kind of surprising. But, you know, they saw this need that there's this this stress level. Definitely approached it in that last response. And you mentioned it earlier. The change in the market, what's going on with legal service providers, what's happening with all kinds of technology, legal tech entering the space, pricing changes, project management. Again, this legal ecosystem that has really approached the legal space, I mean, that's been part of the changing market, as well as more of a focus on value, efficiency, 
really just a very changing profession. What's your take on that? And how are you really looking at those changing market conditions and especially in how you approach the market today versus maybe how you approached it 15 years ago in your practice? When I was doing work in the mid to late 90s for emerging growth companies and we had our first web 1.0 boom and the DC area, you know, with the communications companies in Northern Virginia and then AOL starting Northern Virginia, we may not have been Silicon Valley or even Austin, Texas, but DC was very, very much a part of the the mid-90s tech boom and emerging growth companies. And I remember thinking, you know, if I'm going to be doing work for a lot of these emerging growth companies and entrepreneurs, we're going to have to drill efficiency and project management into the way that I practice law. Over the years, it's not just been small companies that want efficiency and project management and budgets. It's all companies. It's all general counsels, all companies of all sizes. Sometimes the larger companies can be even more difficult in putting pressure on you for budgets and efficiency than even smaller or mid-sized companies. So I think we're now living in a world where there's almost no client that says, hey, Nicole, we love you. You could just bill as much as you want to this file. Don't worry about it. I mean, as long as we get a good result. I haven't heard that in like 10 years or more. I mean, so you're right. You know, we know that these things are influencing the way we practice, but then we turn to our law schools and there's no courses on project management. There's no courses on time management. There's no courses on efficiency. There's no courses on client relationship management or even emotional intelligence. So here are five things that we know are driving the profession and there's no courses on any of them. Georgetown just began an initiative under Larry Center to bring things like meditation, and mindfulness and good mental health. Exercise is good, and I'm all for it, as I said earlier, but exercise is a small piece of the puzzle. A lot of it is stress management, mental health, overall wellness, that if we're going to come in every day and solve client problems and help them identify and execute on opportunities at the rates that we charge, you know, we ourselves have to be wired in a high energy, high health, high responsiveness, ability to operate with limited amounts of sleep type of situation, especially if you're practicing internationally, as I do, you're getting emails all night throughout the night from Europe, from Asia. There is no downtime. And are you ready for that? And I try and coach young lawyers to make sure that they know what they're up for. Our world today and the world they'll be leading in is going to be very different because it is going to include all those things we talked about, you know, the legal tech, the innovations, the the intense project management. We had a guest on, an in-house counsel guest, and they have a program they use with their law firms that shows them that every lawyer every day log the time into the law firm's billing system because this client felt, as some clients do, that if they don't log their time every day, that the time will never be accurate. That was in-house counsel driving that. The legal world is being adjusted by these advances. It is. And I think that the impact of artificial intelligence, robotics, autonomous vehicles, I mean, all these things may only indirectly affect the profession, but there's going to be an AI impact. And you're already seeing it, you know, in electronic discovery, you're seeing it in litigation context. You're seeing it in certain contract formation, and all of these things are good for the efficiency of the profession. But the one thing that AI and robotics can't do is substitute the judgment of a well-trained veteran lawyer. And that's why many people say that 
that the law and a few other professions will be the least impacted by some of these technological developments, but rather we will partner with these tools to make ourselves more efficient. I'd love to have Watson sitting here next to me doing any number of functions that will make me even more productive. It's going to be not a replacement, but an intermingling and a strategic intersection where we will find new ways to use a Watson or data mining or artificial intelligence tools to make ourselves that much more efficient. Artificial intelligence, Watson, it can create another data point for a professional like yourself to use in your decision making. A lot of firms are saying, yeah, we want that additional data point that we can use. It doesn't mean that we're going to allow the computer to make the decision. In business, a lot of this comes down to risk analysis, scenario analysis. What I would love to have a supercomputer on my desk for is, you know, if I can look in a given transaction and identify eight risks and the computer can identify eight more risks, now I have 16 risks to discuss with the client, anticipate and draft around. And as good as my brain may be, if artificial intelligence, data mining, robotics can help me identify eight more that I may have missed or that it sees that I don't see, that makes me that much more effective. So I embrace this stuff. I hope that it doesn't replace me, but just makes me and our firm and the profession that much better. There you go. Andrew, advice to those just starting out specific to business development. What advice would you give those new partners, those third year partners? I would say follow your passion. You know, if you're not a good public speaker, don't try and fake it. If you're not a good article writer, don't try and fake it. It will bounce back. Find the thing that you're most comfortable doing. I remember developing some business development training at a prior firm, and I was talking to this young partner, and she came to me in a one-on-one meeting for mentoring, and she said, I'm so afraid of business development. I don't want to really write. I don't want to speak. I just, how am I supposed to do this? And I said, tell me about your day. Tell me about your week. Well, at one point, apparently her daughter was in pretty intense equestrian training. And every Saturday, she spent three hours at the barns sitting, watching them ride. And I said, well, tell me about the class. Well, we started talking about the class. Do you know that she was sitting for three hours every Saturday with some of the most important business leaders in the city? When she started telling me who some of the other parents were, I thought, wow, I should get my kids into equestrian classes. So there's a business development opportunity in so many different contexts, but use discretion, use professionalism. Nobody wants to be solicited. One of the most important things I learned years ago, and I'll never forget it, I think it was David Meister who said it, legal services are purchased, not sold. You just have to be an engaged conversationalist to tell more about what you do and what your firm does, and then people will make the mental connection. You know, you can't be going to equestrian classes and selling people. You'll never be invited back. But it doesn't mean that you can't strike up a conversation that says, hey, tell me a little more about what you do. Tell me a little bit more about your company. Those conversations ended up yielding her several new pieces of business over time. And her daughter was not thrown out of equestrian classes. There's a lot of context and go with what you're good at. It has to come naturally. You're talking about the creation of fiduciary relationships and trusted advisor relationships. And trusted advisor relationships is not something that you establish on a website. It's something you have to establish by investing time, getting active in your community, getting yourself onto boards, you know, being viewed as a thought leader 
but a genuine thought leader in your community. And I know it sounds old school, but I think that the business will flow from there. And use the tools. LinkedIn has created one of the best platforms in the history of mankind to just stay in touch with people, not have to worry about, oh my God, Nicole moved to a different company and now I don't have her contact information anymore. And how am I going to find her? You know, if you were to make a switch, I'll know about it within seconds on LinkedIn and I can offer you a congratulations and I know where you are and I'll have to update my Rolodex. And, you know, all these tools didn't exist when I came out of school. There was no Google, no LinkedIn. It has made, you know, our lives and communication so much easier. And I have to say our SEO experts that we use at Left Foot have said, Pretty much 97% of lawyers, it is LinkedIn. Tweeting is great and Facebook for international, but frankly, the majority of the people, especially if you're communicating with other lawyers, it's LinkedIn. So it makes that has made our world that much easier. And of course, all of our corporate clients are, are out there in most cases as well. Andrew, we appreciate you sharing your thoughts with our listeners. Any last points you'd like to share before we say goodbye? The most important thing to me is this issue of passion and engagement. I mean, I've had the most amazing 32 and a half year career, and I look forward to the last seven to eight to 10 years of it or however long it's going to be. But I've never not woken up in the morning and been excited to come to work. I've never not been passionate and engaged with respect to my clients. I'm not describing myself as perfect. I'm anything but perfect. But when it comes to the emotional attachment that I have to clients and the emotional investment and the emotional intelligence, it's such an important part. I mean, I really believe that all this talk about business development, none of it is possible if you're not emotionally engaged and emotionally involved and emotionally intelligent because clients can pick it up. They can pick it up in two minutes. They're sitting across the table from you and they're either thinking, I'm so glad I hired this person to help me problem solve or identify opportunities, or they're thinking, I can't believe how much I'm paying an hour for this meeting and I'm getting nothing of value out of it. That's got to come from the heart, not from the brain muscle, not from the wallet muscle, you know, from the heart. And if you're not ready to make that commitment every day, then you've got to rethink, you know, what you're doing because clients, as you pointed out earlier, are becoming more demanding, not less so. And they want to see that you're vested and that you're committed. And, you know, maybe in a future show, we'll talk about how that's going to manifest, you know, the impact of the billable hour and billing relationships and other things. Before we get there, you know, we've got to start with this emotional investment. And it extends not only to your clients, but to your fellow partners. No one wants to practice law with someone that doesn't want to practice law. Important advice. I agree with you. The passion has to be there. Andrew, thank you. It's been a pleasure having you as a guest on Left Foot. It's been a pleasure being on the show and keep up the great work. You're an amazing host. Thank you for listening to this episode of Left Foot. For information on our podcast, our 12-session business development challenge, and our online business development coursework, visit leftfoot.com. It takes focus and thought to lead with the left foot. Until next time.